Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's a joy of mine to get to open up God's Word with you to um, get to proclaim Christ uh, in this place with you all, uh, as I know you to be from knowing your pastor, a people who love the Word of God. So it's a privilege to open it up with you this morning. Um, you'll see in your bulletin, uh, the title of this morning's sermon is What's in a Name? Uh, it says Assorted Scriptures. We're going to be fundamentally in the book of Exodus this morning. So if you're not familiar with how the Bible lays out, uh, that's the second book in uh, uh, the Bible, second book in the Old Testament, second book in the Bible. Uh, and we'll be looking at um, Exodus 3, then jumping on to 33, 34, and then on to John chapter 1. Um, it didn't occur to me, I mean, it did occur to me, but it didn't fundamentally as we're in Advent season, that th- this is an Advent sermon. Uh, as we look at the nature of God's name unpacked uh, over the course of redemptive history, ultimately fulfilled and unveiled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, so let's do this now. We need God's help. Uh, you need God's help to listen. I need God's help to declare the word. So let's go to him. Our great God and Father, we give you praise this morning as we have sung of the cross and we have sung of the incarnation, Jesus, your Son, your eternal Son, very God of very God, leaving glory, leaving your presence to uh, become a man, to live, love, and obey you in the place of us that he might die for us. Uh, God, I pray this morning for any under my voice that their hearts don't light up over that reality of the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. I pray, Father, that you would grip their hearts this morning, that you would woo them and subdue them by your word. Use me, uh, the pitiful preacher that I am, Lord, to declare the magnificence of your Son. Uh, may, be he glor- may he be glorified, and may you, O oh, Jesus, shepherd your sheep, through your word this morning. May you call out more by name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the sermon title this morning, What's in a Name, takes me back to freshman English, high school, that is, in the reading of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. I don't remember a whole lot about it, quite frankly. Little details. For these words, what's in a name, are famous on the lips of Juliet Capulet to Romeo Montague as the two were desperately in love while their families were deeply and venomously seized by hatred of one another. She says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So it doesn't matter what you call it. Put another name on it. Call it a nose. Call it a rose. Call it a tulip. But that doesn't take away its essential nature, its rose-ness, so to speak. Are names just arbitrary designations that we place on things? Or do they actually mean something? I mean, we can kind of feel, I think, in our culture, the arbitrary nature of names. My name is Derek, but really, would I be a different person, necessarily, if my name was Billy? Well, how about in the case of God? Is the divine name, the Lord, I am, or Yahweh, 
just a meaningless designation, or is it connected more deeply, fundamentally, to God's very nature, what God is actually like? This is a big question, since we're going to see that God unpacks the meaning of his name, Yahweh, I am, in the context of redeeming Israel from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. So the main idea of this morning's sermon is this. The Lord reveals the meaning of His name more deeply and intimately through redeeming a people for Himself. And this He does most fully through the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, You'll see if you have your outlines there um, that we're going to look at this under four points this morning. The first point being the context of redemption. The context of redemption. The exodus and the revelation of God's name don't just... Come out of nowhere, there's a context. So first we see in Exodus 1, Israel's growth. The book of Exodus continues the narrative of God's amazing grace in rescuing and restoring sinners from our rebellion against God. In the midst of our first parents' rebellion, Adam and Eve, God promised a redeemer. You may be familiar with, with a, sort of a little enigmatic verse as God's cursing the serpent. Genesis 3.15, where God gives a veiled promise that the seed of the woman, one who will come from Eve, will crush the head of the serpent. Right? And then, and then we have throughout Genesis this, this punctuation, this phrase ten times, these are the generations of, because that promise of a deliverer to come, the seed of the woman, is the whole point of the book of Genesis. And Genesis arrives then, as it were, in Genesis 49, with Jacob blessing his sons, prophesying of a king who's going to come from the line of Judah. And Exodus 1 begins, these are the names of the sons of Israel, continuing God's redemptive purposes and plan. Exodus 1 7 describes how God had made the people fruitful, how they'd increased greatly and filled the land. If you know your Bibles, Genesis 1 26 through 28 ought to be ringing in your ears. God's fulfilling what he commanded Adam and Eve in and through Abraham and his seed, the people of Israel. God took them down, Jacob and his family, 70 in number, and now, almost 400 years later, they're over a million. The promises of God are ringing through. But all is not well, though, is it? We read going on of Israel's enslavement. A king, a pharaoh, has come to the throne who knew not Joseph. All of the wisdom, all of the blessing, all of the salvation that God had wrought through Joseph, who was a glorious type of Jesus, all of that has been forgotten now. There's another king on the throne who knew not Joseph, and now Israel is is under the thumb of this oppressive Pharaoh. Now, now, Pharaoh is attacking and having the sons born to Israel killed. When the midwives wouldn't do it, then he orders for all the sons, the males, to be cast into the Nile River. This is a pregnant example of what we saw back in Genesis 3. This war waging between uh, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Pharaoh is trying to undermine and he's trying to wipe out God's promise. And in the context of that, a baby boy is born. His name's Moses. 
His mom wouldn't just let him be thrown in the Nile, so she makes this basket. It's so interesting. That word used for basket is only used, well, it's used a bunch of times. I think it's used like 25 other times, but it's all in Genesis 6 through 9 to refer to the ark, right? So the, 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 the description of what God's doing with and through Moses is connected back to what God's already done, how he brought his people through the floodwaters of his wrath and saved them safely, right? So what God's doing now with Moses flashes back to what he did with Noah, and it also flashes forward to how he's going to take the people through the walls of water where he's going to destroy and rain down his wrath on his enemies, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but bring his people safely through the waters. So what he's doing here flashes back and flashes forward, preparing us for what God is up to. But it all seems to be going off the rails, doesn't it? Because Moses goes out, they don't seem to like get excited about him coming out from Pharaoh's house, right? It's kind of funny, uh, if you know the narrative, that Pharaoh's daughter is the one who saves him, draws him out of the water, takes him into the house of Pharaoh to be educated, to be brought up, um, so that he might be the one who actually destroys uh, Pharaoh and uh, Egypt. But that's not, it's it, it seemingly not going according, according to plan, right? Because Moses goes out, he murders somebody, now he's on the run. He's on the run and he's in the wilderness. He flees to Midian. He rescues seven daughters of the priest of Midian from the harsh shepherds at the well. He shepherds Ruel, sheep, marries the daughter of Zipporah, and he has a son and his name is Gershon, which sounds like the Hebrew word for sojourner. And here we are in Exodus, 20, uh, Exodus 2, 23 through 25. Listen to this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Now, if you see this language, God remembered, don't, don't read into this you know, your own situations where you're going about the day, and all of a sudden you remember, oh gosh, I forgot to grab some bananas on the way home from work. That's not what's going on here. God doesn't forget. And God wasn't having a moment of, uh, you know, or wasn't having a senior moment as it were, right? This is, this is covenantal language. In the same language when uh, Noah is in the boat and He's about to cause all the floodwaters to dissipate. He remembers Noah. He remembers the covenant. And that's actually the center of that narrative. He remembers and he acts. And now he remembers his covenant. He hasn't forgotten it. I mean, if you go back into Genesis 15 where God makes the covenant with Abraham, he tells him there. Talk about setting Abram's expectations and all of his offspring. He tells him right there that they're going to be in exile for like 400 years, Right? So God's not slow about keeping his promises. He's keeping his promises according to his timetable, which isn't always our timetable. So the, t the stage is now set. God's glorious theater of his redeeming love in which the one true God will redeem his people from slavery while revealing more fully the reality of who he is. So point number two, the divine name more fully known through redemption. I am who I am or I will be what I will be. Now look at 
chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. I want to read this, and then we're going to go back and kind of march through some of this at, at, at a sort of 30,000 feet. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not, bur- bur- why the bush is not burned? I mean, you can understand that. We'd probably do the same thing. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, their cry, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what you have done, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you, bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, or the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So we've got to fly sort of high here. Holy God appears to Moses in a burning bush. Take off your sandals, he calls to Moses. And he promises here, he promises here to come down and deliver his people. Because he is intimately aware of their suffering. And he is ready now to deliver them from oppression. 
just want to pause for just a second because that is a radical idea. I mean, it's the heart of the gospel, but it's a radical idea. And, and some of you may be here this morning and just need to be reminded, whatever you're going through, whatever you're walking through right now, whatever problems you're facing, God knows what's going on in your life. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He sees everything. And some of you this morning, that may be a very encouraging thing because maybe you feel like he's asleep at the wheel and he's forgotten about you, but he hasn't. For some of you, maybe it's a terrifying thing. I don't know. But he sees everything and he knows. And he is a God who comes down to deliver his people. So he promises to come down and deliver the people. But wait, Moses, I'm sending you to do it. Now that's hard for us to grasp the magnitude of, I think, this morning. Pharaoh is the most powerful man on the face of the earth, believed to be a god or the high god's representative on earth. So you can appreciate Moses' trepidation here, right? right? Moses' question is key to understanding the question that he's going to ask God in a bit in regard to his own name. Moses asks, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses isn't asking a question, an identification question. Moses did not forget that his name is Moses. He's not forgotten where he's at, right? He is not having a senior moment either. He's asking a question about his own perceived ineptitude. He's asking a question about his very nature. Who am I? I am a peon. I've been out here in Midian, shepherding flocks for 40 years. Who am I to go to Pharaoh? And even if he lets me into his presence, it's probably so that he can kill me. God's answer is key too. I will be with you. God promises to be with Moses. He's not going at it alone. But Moses asked a further question giving a hypothetical situation. When I come to them, they're in exile, and they say, what's his name? If I say the God of the fathers is sent me to you, they say, what is his name? What should I say? Now, it's clear from the narrative from Genesis 2 up to the present point where we are in God's word that the patriarchs knew God's name. They knew the name Yahweh, right? Because you can read this and maybe think, did they not know the name Yahweh or the Lord as it's uh, rendered in our English text with all caps, L-O-R-D. Um, but that's, that's not the point. So, so if that's not the point, if they do know the name and he's dealing with this, what is his name? What is, what's, he, what's he getting at? And we can say with Juliet, what's in a name? We know in the ancient Near East, names had a great meaning. It had to do with the person's character. And, and this is what Moses is getting at. Okay? Something more fundamental. And God's response here to Moses validates this. Again, if it was just a question of identification, what's his name, Yahweh, and it wasn't a name that they'd ever heard before, why does he respond with a whole sentence than to unpack the meaning of it? See, they knew the name. He says, I am who I am, or, to be translated, I will be who I 
will be. This is unpacking. This isn't a tautology. This isn't him saying it is what it is. This is him talking about his very character, his very nature. The divine name comes from the Hebrew verb of being, hayah. I know you're like excited that you're about to get a Hebrew lesson this morning. All right? It comes from the verb of being, hayah. And here the verb, um, again, can be translated, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Look there in verses 14 and 15. God goes from calling himself I am there in the first person, okay, to referring in verse 15 to himself in the third person, which is the way they will invoke the name, right? They can't say I am who I am because they're not God. So they invoke it in the third person. Uh, Be like Yahweh or Yahweh. He is who he is or he will be who he will be in, in a sense, okay? You say, great, thanks again for the grammar and syntax lesson. But very practically, what does this mean? I think it means two massively important things simultaneously. It points to God's absolute freedom, and it points to his presence with his people. Which if you think about that just for a second, God's freedom, his power, his sovereignty. I tend to think of him like way up there, dwelling in unapproachable light. We can't get near him. He is so powerful and so awesome, right? And then you think of his presence right down in our midst. And and, and what he's communicating by unpacking the meaning of his name, I am who I am, I will be who I will be, is these two things are true of him for his people simultaneously. God is free. He is not dependent upon us. He never changes and he cannot be manipulated by us unlike the false gods of the nations who could be manipulated through um, uh, to, could be manipulated to cause rain for crops they could be manipulated that way through prayer uh, through the cult prostitute system but Yahweh I am is absolutely free and his freedom is wrapped up in his sovereign unchangeable character right God owes us nothing He owes us nothing. If you're here this morning and you're like upset with God about something because he's welched on a promise or or he's not coming through for you, I would sincerely encourage you to really just look at your heart because he doesn't owe us anything. We get it if you're a parent in the house this morning. You get it from parenting because our kids have this insatiable appetite for fairness that's not fair that's not fair that's not and we can go to that place in in sort of an adult um, way which we're real slick and and real good with because we have years of practice you know and we can try to get that way with God like this isn't fair why have you done this to me this isn't fair fair friend you want fair fair is hell fair is the judgment of God that's our just desserts so any mercy, any clemency, any grace is just that. It's mercy. It's grace. I will be who I will be is his absolute freedom. And just above in 3.12, after again Moses asks, who am I? God promises, I will be with you. And that's the other side of what his name means. I am who I am means I will be with you. 3.12, he promises, I will be with you. 
4.12, 4.15, he promises, I will be with your mouth. Remember when Moses said, but I can't talk. I'm uncircumcised of lips. I can't do it, God. And he said, I'll be with your mouth. I'm the one who made your mouth, okay? It's a promise of divine presence. And that's the whole point of the book of Exodus. Yahweh, I am, redeems his people, demonstrating his power over Pharaoh and Egypt, crushing his enemies through the ten plagues and drowning them at the Red Sea in order to come and dwell in the midst of his people. Read the song of Moses, Exodus 15, this glorious, beautiful, poetic song. Just what we sang this morning, right? Singing the gospel, Moses and Miriam on the, and, and, and the million with them there on the banks, they're singing the song of God's redeeming love. And in that, it talks about how he's bringing them to his mountain to dwell in their presence. And if you know the book of Exodus, which you may know, because if you, your first time you read it, it probably went like this, you're screaming through Genesis, that's pretty exciting, there's some pretty interesting stuff in Genesis. And then you get to Exodus, it's like, wow, this is pretty scintillating narrative. And then you get to Exodus 25, and what happens? Oh, oh measurements, animal hair, uh, color of yarn, all the little, little rings to hold stuff, post. Oh, it's of acacia wood. Oh, okay. You know, and you have this moment of, so what? I'll tell you so what. It's a pretty big stinking deal that the God of eternity is coming to dwell in his people's midst. So don't just gloss over those chapters, Right? I know some of you are probably already fretting about visitors coming for Christmas. And you're getting the tree up and you're getting ready to go. Well, this is God from heaven telling them how to set up the house, the tent, that he's going to come and live in the midst of his people. God's presence. And the point for Moses as he trembles at the thought of approaching the most powerful man in the universe is that Yahweh is the all-powerful, unchanging God who is with him. Right? Those two seemingly polar extremes. It's like we don't know anybody with power. And if they were powerful, why would they be with us? Maybe you do. Um, but here's God, all powerful with his people. And his name is more fully known through redemption. He's unveiling himself. Flip with me to Exodus 6, 2 through 8. And you get this, right? Because knowledge of anyone comes through experience, right? We can tend to think, and maybe in a church like this, where you're a little bit more theologically astute and have read a little bit more, sometimes we can, we can get in the mindset of it's just like information transfer. I just need to know more stuff. But you know that true knowledge is actually knowing some, some, somebody or something, right? I mean, if you're a, if you're a guy here to, uh, today, this morning, a husband, um, knowing your wife isn't simply information transfer, it better not be, right? It better be intimate knowing and experiential love where you know her through life experience because you've been through difficulties, right? And this is how God, because he's a relational God, is making known his name. He's unpacking his name, who I am in the midst of redeeming his people. Look at chapter 6, verses 2 through 8. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. That might raise some eyebrows. We'll come back to that in a second. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land, and the land which uh, they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from the Egyptians, uh, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abram, Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. If you have your Bibles open and you're following with me there, you see in that short passage four times, I am the Lord punctuates that passage. God is revealing his name. And when he says here that he revealed himself or made himself known by the name El Shaddai, God Almighty to, to, to the patriarchs, but by the name the Lord, he did not make himself known you, you, you may have may be quick to say, oh, Derek, that kind of contradicts what you said earlier, that the name was known when it sounds like it wasn't known. Again, for the sake of brevity, what I said about experientially knowing answers this question. There is a sense, and this is the point here, and 6-7 really drives this home, that the patriarchs did not know the fullness, the meaning of the name as uh, the Israelites now are going to know it because it's through redemption. It's through the exodus where God is unveiling and revealing himself more fully. Look at 6-7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So it's, it's not a previously unknown name. It's a name that now... Abraham's progeny through the Exodus is going to come to a fuller sense of knowing as they know God at one sense more deeply. God progressively reveals himself, the nature of his name, more and more through the course of history. And verse 7 is key. Israel will know experientially the meaning of Yahweh, who he is, what he does more fully through redemption, through the Lord coming down and saving his people through judgment. Now the narrative of Exodus 4-14 through 14 is all about the Lord multiplying his plagues of judgment, climaxing in the death of the firstborn uh, and the Passover, demonstrating his sovereignty over Pharaoh's hearts. Again, this is the most powerful man in the world, and God is demonstrating his power over him. Uh, Romans 9 says, I, I raised you up for this very purpose to display my power, quoting from Exodus 9. And this, he did all of this so that Israel might know his name. That they might know I am. He does it so that the Egyptians, so that Pharaoh might know that I am. And so that Yahweh would get glory over Pharaoh in Egypt at the Red Sea where he destroyed his enemy and saved his people that his name might be known in all the earth. And before you think God's a megalomaniac and he's just, yeah, 
a crazed man who just wants everybody to bow down. The fruit of that, one piece of fruit of that, comes in Joshua chapter 2 when Rahab receives the spies. And she says, we've heard of your God. (laughs) A Gentile prostitute hears. Why? Because our God is making his name famous through salvation and judgment. This is the gospel in type form. God comes down to deliver his people. He provides them blood to smear over the doorways of their homes so that when he passes through striking down the firstborn throughout the land, only the Egyptians would be struck down in judgment. If the Israelites hadn't applied the blood of the lamb to their doorway by faith, they too would have died. They would have been judged because they're sinners. They weren't being saved because they were good. They were being saved because God's gracious and they by faith obeyed God. And then the Lord delivers them from enslavement and destroyed Pharaoh, God's enemies, their enemies at the Red Sea. This is the gospel. God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's wrath turned away through the death of a substitute. God snatching enslaved prisoners out of the dungeon and bringing them out in redemption. The the Exodus is is the cross event of the whole Old Testament. It sets the pattern of redemption that God saves His people in and through judgment for His glory, for the fame of His name, that all the nations may know, that they may bow in faith and worship Him. You see, the Israelites came to know more fully what I am or Yahweh is like through the glorious display of His power and grace in the Exodus. And they also come to know more fully the nature of who He is, His name, through sin and grace. So flip with me now to Exodus chapter 32 through 34. We'll fly extremely high here. The Lord has redeemed His people in order to dwell in their midst and bring them to the land He promised to Abraham where they might be a light to the nations. Chapters 19-24 through of Exodus are all about the Lord entering into covenant with Israel, bringing them as on eagles' wings to Sinai and entering into covenant with them. Chapters 25-40, through I mentioned earlier, are all about the Lord coming to dwell in their midst. The very last verses of chapter 40 speak of God's glory coming down upon the tabernacle in such a way that Moses couldn't even enter into it. God's glory so magnificently dwelled. Now, chapters 32 through 34 break up the instructions of the actual building of the tabernacle with a story you may be familiar with. The story of the golden calf. Israel's idolatrous rebellion. Exodus 32, Israel led by Moses' brother Aaron rebels against the Lord. He breaks the covenant, fashioning a golden calf at the foot of the mountain while Moses is up there receiving the two tablets of the law inscribed by the finger of God. Friends, this is like the only analogy that I can give you to, to grasp this would be like someone committing adultery on their very wedding night. Right? God has redeemed them. He's brought them to himself to enter into covenant with them. This is gracious. 
lest you think that the Ten Commandments are just a ladder to get to God. The prologue of the Ten Commandments are, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the house of slavery in Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. Right? We still understand obedience, I think, in the New Covenant. This isn't a law covenant that was meant to be legalistic. This was grace. God bringing them to himself. The problem is not the law. The problem is their heart. And that's what's revealed. They're hard. Hearts. That while Moses is on the mountain, they're at the foot, cavorting about, having Aaron make a calf so they can head back to Egypt, of all places. And now the Lord is going to wipe them out and start over with Moses. And we see Moses in a very Christ-like way in chapters 32 and 33, interceding for the people, fundamentally pleading with the Lord on the basis of His promises to Abraham and God's own glory. Right? What will the Egyptians think? What, you just brought them out in the wilderness to wipe them out? Think about your name. Moses is kind of helping the Lord, and this is going to sound bad, with this you know, public relations, right? Hey, think about the Egyptians. Just think about your name, Lord. I, I appeal to God like that at times. Lord, think about your name. If you save my kids, you, there'll be more people to sing your praises. You'll be glorified. See, he doesn't owe my kids anything. He doesn't owe them a thing. And in the midst of his pleading, the Lord relents of a full and deserved I might add, judgment. He promises to go ahead and bring them up to the land in chapters 32 and 33, but this is, this is very important. He says, I won't go up in your midst. I'll send an angel before you because if I go up in your midst, I'm going to wipe you out. This is, what's, what's taking place has everything to do with the nature of God's name. Look at Chapter 33, verses 12 through 16. Moses and the Lord are in dialogue over this. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Right? Because earlier he said, I'm not going to go up in your midst now. I'm going to send an angel. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please Show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. And he said, the Lord said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It's a big theme. And he said to them, and he said to him, if your presence will not go with me. Do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight and I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So a couple things here. In verse 12, Moses wants to know who's going up with them. Yahweh or the angel. Don't send us if your presence isn't in our midst because it's your presence that sets us apart from all the other people. Two, Moses wants to know the Lord. 
to know His ways. God has to reveal Himself experientially. Knowing is not simply factual information transfer. It's intimacy. As I mentioned earlier, the, the husband and wife analogy to that. Think about it. Sorry I'm coming at it all from the guy's side of the point of view this morning. But think about it, guys. Please don't tell me, no matter how long you've been married, that you know everything there is to know about your wife. Right? I'm coming up on 10 years. And my wife is deep waters, man. You know, I'm learning things about her all the time. And you don't get it by saying, okay, let's just download all the factual data that I need to know about you so we can win some contest, you know, over what couple knows uh, their spouse better at the next Valentine banquet, right? No. It's through intimate dealing, life together. And that's what Moses is asking here. Now look at verses 17 through 23. Because it's going to be super clear that God's presence is connected with His name. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory, His presence. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And you... I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So you see the connection, God's presence to His name. And again, the, part of his, the meaning of His name is His freedom. I will be gracious. He's unpacking. He's beginning to unpack His name. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll be merciful to whom I will be, I will show mercy. Right? And this event that's being talked about here takes place then in the next chapter. So look at verse, or chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. Back it up in verse 5 of chapter 34. So this that the Lord is, or, or that um, Moses has asked, the Lord is going to do. He's going to hide him in the cleft of the rock. He's going to declare his name. He's going to pass by. Moses will see his backside. He can't see his face and live. The Lord descended, verse 5, in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Verse 8, And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Right? The Lord is revealing His name. He's unpacking the meaning of His name in the context of sin. In the context where the only thing they were owed was judgment. And you, and you hear a, a very clear emphasis on God's grace, don't you? Here in verses 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, 
gracious, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The accent is clearly on his grace. He goes into, in the latter part of that, that he will visit the iniquity of, of those who sin. Right? But the accent is clearly on his grace. But there is a sense in which here now a tension has been created, isn't there? And you read this. I read this. And I'm beginning to wonder, am I going to get grace? Or are you going to visit on my head my iniquity? His name is displayed in the balance of His justice and mercy, which He works together to display His perfect character. We see God's name, Yahweh, more fully revealed through redemption, the exodus, and now through the people's covenant breaking and His gracious renewal of the covenant. But the balance of God's justice and grace presents a tension that's never finally and fully resolved until God comes in the flesh. Jesus becomes a man and dies in the place of sinners like us. Look at point number four. Divine, the divine name most fully known through Jesus. Flip with me to John chapter 1. How are we doing on time, by the way? I completely lost track of time. We're fine. Okay, good. I don't usually ask that in the middle of a sermon, but I forgot to set my watch. So look with me at John chapter 1. Verse 1, and then we'll jump down to 14 through 18. And, and this is just really, this is glorious. This is bringing it home. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This Word is Jesus. Jesus is God. Right? He's not the Father, but He's God. Kind of blow our, blows our minds a little bit. And verse 14 and following, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's Christmas. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only, as, a, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace Upon grace, or grace in the place of grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. So the first thing when you see verse 1, Jesus is God. Verse 14, Jesus is I am in the flesh. The Word became flesh. Remember Exodus 3 where God says, I've come down to deliver you. This is God come down to deliver us. You need to note three words or phrases. The first is dwelt. Right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a unique verb. It's not used a lot. It's connected to the Greek word 
or tabernacle. Okay? Um, so literally, the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Right? If you're not connecting this back to the Exodus narratives yet, you will. And we beheld His glory. Glory as, of the, as the only Son from the Father. Right? Glory of God comes down on the tabernacle. The glory of God comes down after Solomon builds the temple. John is pulling out every bag of tr- everything in the bag of tricks to communicate to us who Jesus is. He's God. He is I Am. Right? He's the dwelling presence of God on earth. It's not in the temple. He's not in the temple anymore. He's right here in the flesh, and we've seen his glory. Just like Moses saw the glory, the Shekinah glory of God come down on the tabernacle and, and, and Solomon in the temple, now we've seen it. John's saying, I've seen it. I promise I've seen it. We've seen it. Full of grace and truth echoes Exodus 34, 67, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, right? Jesus is I am. He's the glory of God incarnate, the fulfillment of all the tabernacle and temple pointed to, the fullness of the revelation of God's name. He's the very presence with his people in Jesus Christ. God has come down to deliver his people and dwell in our midst. And now verses 16 through 18 unpack this a bit more. 15 is parenthetical talking about John the Baptist. Verse 16 speaks of four, supporting what he said in verse 14, four, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. If you have the old NIV 1984, it's not real helpful. It translates that one blessing after another that has nothing to do with what's going on here. He's talking about grace in the place of grace. He's talking about how Jesus is ushering in a new covenant, and verse 17 is going to unpack that and make that more clear, right? Because he's going to very clearly pit the old covenant of Moses with the new covenant that Jesus is bringing in. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. So there was grace in the place of grace. God graciously redeemed his people, brought them to himself to himself at Sinai, entered into covenant with them. But Jesus is the initiator of a better covenant based on better promises because he's a better sacrifice, because he's the priest, as Hebrew says, of the order of Melchizedek, who always lives to make intercession for us. He's the greater than Moses, right? His covenant is better in every way. He is God in the flesh, ultimately going and dying for us. And verse 18 tells us that it is Jesus who unveils the Father for us. You've probably heard, I bet Ken or or, or somebody here has used the word exegesis before, right? You've heard that word? It's a pretty heady church. You've heard that word? You know, just teaching the text, unpacking what the text says. Literally, this says that Jesus exegetes the Father here in verse 18. He makes the Father known to us. And he does this ultimately by going to the cross for us. The, the tension of Exodus 34, 6 through 7, God is a God of mercy and grace, abounding in steadfast love, and yet he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the sons, and he will 
not give a get-out-of-jail-free card. This tension isn't resolved until we come to Jesus at the cross. Well, the Bible tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that he might make us the very righteousness of God in him. Or Paul in Romans 3 describes how God, the Father, set forth Jesus as a propitiation in his blood, as the very mercy seat of God. It was Jesus pouring out his blood to redeem us. And Paul says in verses 25 and 26 of Romans 3 that God did this so that he would be both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ. You see, all sin will be dealt with. All sin will be punished. Either your sin is dealt with and punished by God pouring out his infinite wrath on Jesus at the cross where he was made to know sin, where God poured out his wrath and Jesus drank down to the dregs the cup of God's wrath such that he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Either your sins are atoned for there or you will be punished for them for all eternity in hell. As it were, what Jesus has done on the cross is he's taken all of our eternities in hell in that moment and he drank God's wrath down until there was no more. And this reveals the heart of God. A God who is gracious and merciful and yet who will not pardon the sinful and the iniquitous. See, the fullness of God's name, Yahweh I Am, is truly, intimately, and ultimately known only through Jesus, the great I Am. God is with us and He is for us. And we know this because He became one of us. And He died for us so that we might live with Him forever. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know Him? I don't mean, have you prayed a prayer? I don't mean simply have you entered into the waters of baptism. I mean, do you know him? When you hear the gospel or you sing the gospel, and we, have, we, we sang the gospel this morning. Thank you, wherever the, the team is. I was blessed. Does that get you excited? Or is it kind of ho-hum? Because if it's ho-hum, you might want to do some checking on your heart. Because the gospel that saves is a gospel that changes us, it transforms us, and it ignites our passion for Him. The gospel communicates so clearly what a train wreck each and every one of our lives are. I mean, we are messed up, we are broken. Without Jesus, we are wickedly sinful. I mean, even in Christ, I think about some of the ways I try to manipulate or, 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 or get my own way. And when God shines the light of his glory on that through his spirit, I'm aghast at times of the sin that still indwells within me. We are messed up by sin. And, and the only hope the only remedy is the gospel, Jesus Christ, for us. Not just to put away his wrath. Oh, thank God in heaven that Jesus put away 
God's wrath against us. But that through the gospel and in the gospel, he's actually making us more like Jesus. That we live more and more like Jesus. This is what the gospel does. And if this morning you come up for air when I say that you're wicked and that you're messed up and that you're broken, I would submit to you that you probably don't know Jesus. Because until you understand the mess that you've made of your life, you will never grasp the fullness of his glory, the greatness of his salvation, and all that he has done. You'll never appreciate that God has come down to dwell in you by his spirit, and that is what he has done. Friend, if you're outside of Jesus, I just ask you this morning, if, if I just told you this story about a person, not God, but just a person doing this for you, a king leaving their throne to come down and die for you. You'd probably say, oh my gosh, that's the most amazing story in the world. But it's true, and God did it. Why are you not more moved that God did it? Friend, this is the kind of God we have, and he loves sinners like us. He loves us, and he gave his son for us. And I would appeal to you if you don't know him, or you're wrestling, or even now where you are in your heart, cry out to him to save you. Jesus has done this for us. He's the dwelling presence of God and he came down to fulfill all that the temple was and is. He's the temple. He's the priest in the temple. He's the place of sacrifice. He's, the, he's everything. And he did this ultimately so that we would dwell with him forever. Look at John 14, 1 through 3 as we close this morning. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God Believe also in me, in my Father's house. He's talking about Revelation 21 and 22. He's talking about the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also, Jesus came down. He's the tabernacling presence of I am. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the resurrection life. I am, here in verse 6, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. And now, by the Spirit's empowering presence, the Father and the Son, Jesus said in John, dwell in us. Did you see this? God takes wicked sinners like us who were in the garden with God, God's presence, His tabernacling presence. We were in the garden with God and Adam and Eve booted out. God redeems His people, brings them back into His presence in the tabernacle in the temple. That's ultimately pointing to Jesus coming down. He's the place of God's presence. The glory of God is on Him. And He does this to make us, us, the place of His presence. That's what the church is. Paul tells us that the church is the temple of God. It's the, we're the place of his presence. God who dwelled in the tabernacle. Jesus, in his incarnation, now by his spirit, makes us his holy home. And this is all in view of the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell in his presence forever and ever and ever and ever. 
Brothers and sisters, friends, we were made by God for God to dwell in His very presence. Westminster Shorter Catechism First question is, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You were made for joy. You were made for glory. You were made for His presence. His name, unpacked over the course of redemptive history, and finally and fully in Jesus Christ, drives this point home. We were made for His presence to dwell with Him and bask in Him where. As Psalm 16 says, there are pleasures at his right hand forevermore. God, by any other name but Yahweh, I am, would not be so sweet. He is near to us. He has delivered us from sin's tyranny. He has destroyed death and given us life. And this life is now in us by the Spirit. And all this is so that we might enjoy him forever. As we close, I want you to consider, I want us to consider, how should the tabernacling presence of God right now in us by His Spirit and in the future by our dwelling with Him forever and ever drive our living right now? How should the presence of God, His name, drive the way we live right now? First, three things. First, in holiness of character. It should affect our character. It should affect our holiness. Sin corrupts, destroys, and brings God's judgment. We were made for His presence. In His presence, there is no sin, right? In order to get us into His presence, Jesus had to come and die on the cross and bear all of our sin away through the wrath of God. God hates our sin. Jesus despised it as He considered His shame of going to the cross. But for the joy set before Him, He endured it, right? But He hated it. If we get the dwelling of God in our life by His Spirit and where we will be for all eternity, that ought to cause us, enable us by the power of the gospel to go hard after sin. This isn't a bootstrap Christianity, pull yourself up, grit your teeth, white knuckle it, and be good. This is, you have the power of the free God of the universe in your life by the Spirit of God. In the gospel, you are able we sang of it this morning didn't we that we're not in chains that we're no longer we're no longer hostage to sin any longer and so this reality as we think on it as we meditate upon it helps us to process who we are whose we are and it's astounding jesus endured the cross despising the shame and he did this for us holiness holiness it's not cool to sin. If you know the gospel, you recognize that it always hurts, just very practically. Secondly, it ought to affect us in love and sacrifice. Jesus in John 13, 34 through 35 said, A new commandment I give to you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Right? His cross, His cross sets our agenda as the body of Christ. How you are to interact with fellow members of Lakeside Bible Church. Are you laying down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you go out of your way to serve someone? Jesus left glory. 
to die for you. You can go help someone move. Yeah, you can, you know, make time in your schedule to encourage a brother or sister who's struggling. Right? The gospel, the reality of his dwelling, shapes us such that we ought to love and serve like him. Finally, it ought to affect us in mission and witness. God the Son came down to deliver us. He bled and died so that we might live. Has our Savior's rescue mission gripped you? If we bear his name, then we ought to be about his business of declaring the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his glorious light. Do you go out of your way to share the gospel with strangers? It's a question I had asked to me the other day. Do you go out of your way to share the gospel with strangers? I hemmed and hawed for a little bit and, you know, it was convicting. Because as we prepare in less than a month to move to Amsterdam, I am scrambling like crazy to get paperwork done, write lectures, so can't do that at my parents' house, so I go to Starbucks to try to get a little bit of work done, and I honestly go in there and, like, situate myself with my back to the door so no old high school friends come in and see me and I have to engage them in conversation because I don't have time. Don't tell me you've never felt that way. When the tyranny of the urgent has so pushed our lives to the margin, it's a sacrifice to be on mission. We've got to come down. We've got to get down in the nitty-gritty. We've got to get dirty with people. We've got to engage them. We've got to listen to what's going on in their life. And that takes time. And I know for me, I've got to trust the Lord that the lectures will get written because he might want to save one of those old high school friends. And brothers and sisters in Christ, if the tabernacling presence of God here at Lakeside Bible Church is going to expand, it's going to expand through your witness to individuals and corporately as a body loving one another. May God's glory redound out of this place. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his love. We thank you for saving us. We praise you, O God. In Christ's name, amen.